Hey there, it's Michelle Lamoureux and welcome back. Today, I am rerunning one of my favorite interviews. It's with Lisa Genova, the New York Times bestselling author of Still Alice. Now you'll hear us talk about COVID and how she was coping. Just keep in mind, this was recorded back in October of 2020 and it now is rerunning in January of 2021. So this is a rich beautiful conversation on how to live a life of meaning. And if you've actually listened to it before, it's one of those interviews that's definitely worth tuning into again. So here we go. It's interesting. So for anything in life, if I have this discord, if I have this internal restlessness, this sense of this isn't right, and the fear starts coming. And for me to get still and think to myself, and feel in myself, what do I know? What, do I, what is my known truth? It usually raises its hand very quickly. And when I listen to it, the path is clear and life flows and synchronicities happen and life feels magical. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am so excited that you're tuning in today because I have an amazing show lined up for you, which I believe is going to leave you feeling inspired and uplifted and remembering what's possible for your own life, which is really the intention and has always been the intention of the show. And for today's episode, I'm thrilled to announce that New York Times bestselling author Lisa Genova joins me for a deep conversation about life, including how she followed her purpose during uncertain times. Lisa was my very first guest, and I'm so thrilled that she's back. Now, tapping into her background as a neuroscientist, Lisa has written five best-selling fiction books, including Still Alice, which won Julianne Moore an Oscar in 2015. Lisa's first nonfiction book, Remember, The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting, is available for pre-order now, and Lisa hopefully will be back to tell us more about her new book. Now, since we recorded this interview, Lisa has revealed on Instagram that Angelina Jolie is slated to star in the film adaptation of her 2018 novel, Every Note Played. And this is what we get into in this episode, what's possible. We talk about purpose and passion and synchronicities and manifesting and practices to put into place to awaken to what's possible for you. I cannot wait to share this episode with you. Before we jump in, just one second of housekeeping to say if you've yet to subscribe to the show, please do that on your favorite podcast player. As a reminder, all of the show notes will be available over at thegoodlifecoach.com for today's show with Lisa. And I'm going to actually link the very first interview I did with her, episode number 001, so you can tune into that conversation as well. 
I'm so excited to bring you this interview with Lisa Genova, who's a beautiful example of living on purpose and following your dreams. So here we go. Hey, Lisa, thank you for coming back on the show. Hi, Michelle. So fun to be with you again. Well, happy second anniversary. (laughs) Cheers and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful you have agreed to come back on the show. I loved our conversation. You were the very first episode and it was such a great and soulful conversation. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to cover for the second anniversary, it occurred to me that purpose, meaning, uncertainty, a lot of the things we were talking about um, is what's top of mind right now. And I was like, wow, if I could reconnect with Lisa and go kind of deep. We're going to go kind of deep today if you're game on living a life of meaning and uh, sharing what you know. So I love keeping episodes evergreen. So when people come back in, but considering we're in a pandemic right now and nobody's really lived through anything like this, I did want to ask, you know, first how you've been doing and managing and, you know, how, how are you? I'm okay. It's it's such a it's such a moment to choose perspective, right? And so I think that on the one hand, I'm incredibly anxious about the world at large, our country, the planet, the rights of black people and women. Um, you know, RGB just passing away has has evoked a lot of feelings of enormous gratitude for this amazing woman's life and a fearfulness of is her legacy intact. Um, So there's a lot of uncertainty right now and we human beings do not like uncertainty. It it brings up a lot of stress. Um, So I feel that I feel scared for my, my fellow human beings in this moment with this pandemic. Mm. Um, I feel restless. I miss being in the world. I'm an extrovert. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love being around lots of people. I love hugging my friends and seeing them and connecting with new people and and traveling. And, you know, I see my friends mostly on screens and I haven't hugged enough people (laughs) for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I feel there's a, there's a part of my essential aliveness that has been sort of put on a shelf for now. And I know it's temporary. I know we'll get back to real life someday. Um, but it's hard. It's like running a marathon, but you don't know how many miles the race is, right? So how much longer are we running this thing? So there's that. And, you know, I have, I'm raising kids and they're tired and angry and exhausted and have been around each other for too long and are bickering and fighting and, um, they're back at school. We're very lucky here on Cape Cod. Um, they are back five days a week. Mm. They're six feet apart and wearing masks and in the same classroom all day long. They don't get to move around at all. So I'm so grateful and they're happy to be back. And yet yeah. it's not normal life yet. Mm. So it, and so perspective, right? So, so that sounds like a whole lot of complaining. I think it's, it's, not meant to be complaining. I think there's value in honoring what's true and real and acknowledging it, not trying to suppress it and bury it and be like, everything's fine. I'm mm-hmm. good. Are you good? Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's that. And then to balance that, there's the appreciation for all of the healthcare workers who are 
in hospitals every day facing this pandemic and people who are COVID positive and putting their own lives at risk. And there are, you know, the people who are out there uh, peacefully protesting to make sure that the rights of black people are that they have justice and that have, they haven't seen in this country ever. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's still going on. Um, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to all the scientists who go to work every day and are trying to find a vaccine for us. Um, I'm grateful that my fam- my immediate family's safe um, and that I have a, a livelihood that I can continue from home. So, you know, my writing continues. And so things are good. I'm okay. And I feel a little less vibrant than I normally do. Yeah. Well, thanks for the realness of that. It's interesting. I was talking about using the analogy of a marathon. That's exactly what it feels like because in the beginning we were sort of bracing ourselves and it's like, okay, I train, you know, you've not trained for this actually, but you know, you're going and you're going, but at least with a marathon, you, you know, when you're reaching the end. Ah. And so I think we kind of braced ourselves for a marathon and now we're like, oh shoot, this might be like a triple marathon. <laughs> I don't think I can right, do this. Right. Yeah. yeah. The beginning of the pandemic, I was really good at um, exercising every day and we're doing thousand piece puzzles and we're doing obstacle courses through the house. And it was it was like a big giant snow day. It was tons of fun and I had lots of energy for it. And that has definitely petered out. (laughs) I'm a little less enthused to get on a Zoom exercise class and just really want to go back to the yoga studio that we can't go back to yet. Totally. And I can relate as an extrovert who likes to hug the people she loves too. So I feel for you. Have you incorporated? Have you found any things you can do? I know yoga is a big part of your life. Any grounding exercises, anything you're doing to help manage? Manage the stress. And it's important yeah. to do that for so many reasons. I mean, chronic- are you though? Or is, are you? Yeah. Yeah, I am. So I, I'm, it helps to understand that, you know, well, I'm feeling chronically stressed not good for my memory. It's not good for my immune system. It's not good for our biology, our psychology, our longevity, like stress, chronic stress is not good for us. So I make it a priority. And so I meditate every day. Um, I either meditate on a mantra or I listen to something um, online. So I and I'm spacing on the Oh, God, this is Dan Harris's podcast. Oh, Dan. I went to college um, with Dan. That's funny. Yeah. So I, yeah. um, 10%, 10% happier. happier. Yeah. I was like, okay. yeah. <laughs> just had a tip of the tongue moment there. Yeah. So I, I listened to that one or I just do one on my own. I often meditate while I'm outside with the dog. So during COVID, we got a dog. Nice. Um, so I'll let him wander around while I, I sit and, and meditate just to, again, sort of quiet and slow down and be aware of the thoughts that are running inside me. Notice them. Okay. That's what's going on. Let it pass through. Um, I do yoga at home. It's not as satisfying as being in my community. Um, but I, I do the yoga at home and I can tell that that's good for my, the integration of body, mind, and spirit. So I try to do that. I do about 30 minutes a day. Um, Otherwise, it's getting present. So life at home and COVID, it's a lot of meals at home for a lot of people. So I've, I've got three kids. My college-age student was here since March and my other two kids. And then I have a boyfriend who comes and goes. And it's, it's I'm washing the dishes right now. 
I am washing dishes and I will sort of repeat what it is that I'm doing just to be present doing it. It's when my children are talking to me, getting down to their eye level. I mean, when my youngest is 10 and just absorbing her, like mm. taking her in rather than like, Oh, I got to get to my phone and I got to get to the computer and I got to get to, you know, washing the stupid dishes or I got to get to whatever's next. I think that the slowing downness, if you can, if you can accept that, that life is slower right now and be in the slowness of it, that part's really cool. When I can do that with my kids, like really just absorb their adorable little faces and what they're trying to tell me, whether it's something you know dramatic or upsetting or it's just something like cool and exciting, like just to be in that moment with them, truly, like it's it's um it's incredibly satisfying and grounding. Like, Oh, I'm not racing around trying to do something. I'm just here. That actually feels pretty good. That's something I want to try to take with me when we do climb our way out of this pandemic. Um, the memory of, and the familiarity of what it feels like to really be slower mm. and home when you're home and be available to absorb what's right in front of you. Mm, so beautiful. It's so beautiful and so important because even though we are stuck at home, life is still noisy. There's still too many distractions. And when you're stressed, it's easy to want to escape and absorb those distractions versus stay present. So I really loved what you just yeah, shared. I think that's so I'm key. I'm watching the dishes, right? Because it's it's weird, right? So it's slower. There's not as much to do and going on in some sense. And then the other, it's bizarre, right? It's in yeah. some alternate alternate physical dimension because the days fly by in some ways. Totally. I, don't, I feel like I don't get anything done yet. I'm constantly being pulled into one thing and the next it's one fire drill to the next. Um, especially with the kids, there's a lot of crises throughout the day. Mom, mom. So um, it's, it's definitely not relaxing, but it's slower. And so if you can, if you can dial into that slowness and not race around, like, oh, I got to pay this bill. And then I got to go do that. And then I, I don't know, you're doing this right now. That's it. That's all there is, is what's right now. Okay. I love it. I love it. Now, last we spoke, you, we were talking about your last book, Every Note Played. Yeah. And as a writer with, so you mentioned a 10 year old, how old's your middle child? He's almost 13. Okay. An almost teenager and then a college age student. A -old, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where are you with your writing? I understand you have a nonfiction, but you probably are working on a fiction. So where, where are you with your writing? Yeah. So um, every note played, just to put this out there, is going to be a movie. I cannot reveal the cast to you just what? yet. I, I well, saw it as a movie. When I read this book, I'm like, I see this on the screen so clearly. Oh my God. I'm thrilled. Congratulations. Okay. Awesome news. Thank, Thank you. For sharing yeah. That. I posted the, the, the copy of the script to, um, I think Instagram and Facebook, but if, if you follow me on social media and keep up with me any week now, I'll be able to let hey, you all know who's hey. in it, which is super exciting. Oh, so, um, so exciting. that's happening. I, uh, I finished a nonfiction book called remember the science of memory and the art of forgetting. And that's coming out in March. And I'm, I'm still in the process of sort of finishing up the final, final, final edits on that. Um, and it's already available for pre-order. It's, it's coming out. And that book, the intention behind that book is to help people feel reassured about the kinds of forgetting that we human beings experience because our brains 
while they're amazing and astounding at what our brains are capable of remembering, and I can let you know how to support your memory and how to make it it, anything you want to remember, you actually can. You just have to supply the right kind of information. And yet our brains aren't really designed to remember certain everyday things that plague us and drive us bananas. So there's the, why did I come in this room? (laughs) Or where did I put my phone? Where did I put my keys? Where did I put my glasses? Or, oh, what's that guy's name? You know, the man, the, the, he's, oh, the actor who stars in that movie with, mm-hmm. what's her name? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. we do that every day. Yeah. And then at a certain age, the frequency might tick up a little bit. And then we start to panic and stress. And so I, I just, in the past decade or so, in talking about Alzheimer's with, with respect to Still Alice and talking to audiences around the world about Alzheimer's and normal forgetting versus forgetting due to dementia, I've come to realize that there's a lot of misconception and panic and fear around people's memory and a not and a, and a misunderstanding as to that forgetting is actually a part of being human and it's actually mm. essential for us to forget so that we can remember what matters. Mm. So this book is intended to feel like a conversation about hey, here's here's how your memory works. Here's how, what it does really well. Here's what it sucks at. And when it fails, this is why. And some things you can do about, you can do something about to improve. And other things you really should just let go because it, eh, that's part of the, the deal of having a brain. This is how it's designed. I'm so excited for that. March, and I'm excited to give people that book because I think it's, it's, it's needed. People out there are concerned about their memory and fascinated by it too. It's really cool to understand how it works. I'm excited uh, to read that one. And hopefully you'll come back and tell us about that too. Oh, I definitely will. And then, so right now I'm working on, I'm back to writing fiction, which feels so good. I love telling stories. There's so much more room to run and create and play around. Um, but th- So this novel is going to be about a woman with bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And so I've read maybe 20 books now on bipolar and I've begun talking to people who have it and relatives of people who have it and psychiatrists and psychologists who treat it. And so I'm, I haven't actually started the, the writing as of yet. I'm still learning the truth. And then I'll weave that into the imagined circumstances soon. That's great. How long does it take you to complete a book generally? I know you're doing two at once, so that's probably a little different, but generally speaking. Yeah, there was some overlap here. Um, Generally speaking, I do four to six months of research. This research has taken a little bit longer, mostly because my kids were all home since March. <laughs> like, I haven't, I just, I don't know if it's a good excuse or, or what, but it's real. Like, I just have, have not had my life as it norm- and the, at the pace it normally goes. So that's all right. Um, so normally four to six months of research and then about a year to write. So I'm... It's a funny moment right now because I'm at that moment in this book where I I have been with every book I've written where I don't know who the characters are yet. And it's scary because it's like I have this intention and responsibility to write this book, especially once I start talking to people who have it. There's the I will write this book. Uh, You know, these people have entrusted me with the most vulnerable details of their life. And I'm going to put that to good use and honor that and, and help give them a voice and help other people understand their experience. So I'm doing this. So there's the commitment 
and it's happening. And yet I don't know who these characters are yet. So it's a little terrifying. And then there's the, at the same time, I love thinking how I get out of that fear because it can be paralyzing. Like, Oh my God, I don't know anything. I don't know who the, who are these characters and what are they in the middle of doing when this woman has bi- is diagnosed with bipolar or starts experiencing symptoms of bipolar disorder. And how will I tell the story? And all of the questions um, I get to, you'll do it this time next year, like ne- by next December, it will be done. So do the characters speak to you, Lisa? Cause I'm just embarking on this fiction thing. And I find that I will be driving and a scene will pop into my head so viscerally that I'm like, Oh my goodness, I got to write this down. Pull this- over when that happens. I yes. haven't even written one that just came. And I was like, I got to get that down. Cause it made me laugh out loud. And I was like, Oh, that's funny. So do you, it, cause Absolutely. are you a plotter or do you allow like do the characters? Yeah. No. So I don't plot ahead of time. I'm going to do all of this research and I have a sense for, you know, what are the constraints of what could possibly happen given, you know, if I'm writing about, ALS, there is a trajectory that that disease, there's a course that that runs. With bipolar, there, there are, you know, the, the dysregulation of mood and the swings from depression to mania. I'm not going to make that up, that that happens. And, um, and yet, I don't know what's, you know, from chapter to the next, what's going to happen. I don't, I don't plot it out. Um, yes, I do hear from them. And it, it's funny. <laughs> it, it, um, I hear from them while I'm writing. I hear from them before I write. I haven't started hearing them yet for this book, so I have to keep sort of inviting from the universe. I'm listening. Like, please start to, to show yeah. me the way. Yeah. Um, for Inside the O'Briens, I had I had a whole, I don't know, page, I had a page and a half in Katie O'Brien's point of view that came to me at least a year before I began writing any of it. Wow. I was in, I was in a, Starbucks in Vancouver. Um, and yeah, and, all of a I, and I, and I stopped what I was doing. I'm like, let me write this down. I don't know where this is coming from necessarily, but this is going in. And then even while I'm writing, so like with love, Anthony, I was writing. So that's the book about autism. And I was writing this chapter where Olivia, who's the mother of a boy with autism, she's walking through her neighborhood on, on Nantucket and she's thinking whatever she's thinking. And she picks up the mail from the mailbox, gets to her front door. And I'm typing this. And she looks down and she's holding a letter from her ex-husband. And I stopped typing. And I, I just sort of looked around and went, no, don't have a letter from your ex-husband because I have no idea what it says. So I deleted all of that. I went back to her walking through the neighborhood. And she's thinking about whatever she's thinking about. She gets the mail. She gets to the front door. And I, I'm like, oh, my God, she still has that letter in her hand. And I can't get rid of it. So I was like, all right, you have to tell me what's in the letter because I don't know. I love this. You have um, no idea how much I love this. This is so fascinating because this yeah. is what I'm experiencing a little. And I think any writers listening are going to love this. Yeah. And maybe it sounds a little cuckoo if you're not a writer, but I found great comfort in listening to, and it's now, you know, many, many years old. It's um, Liz Gilbert's Ted talk on creativity. And she talks about this very thing. And um, I think she references Tom Waits driving through the desert and suddenly a song comes to him and he yells to the heavens. He's like, can't thank you. But like, can't you see I'm driving right now? And like, if you want me to, no, write the song like could you give it to me when I can write it down yeah, when I'm home um, in front of my computer <laughs> yeah so I've also learned that like when these whooshes of like character and voice and scene come to come to me 
It's usually while I'm driving, while I'm walking, or when I wake up. I could be sleeping in the middle of the night I wake up, or I wake up in the first thing in the morning, sometimes there's a whoosh. Um, I've learned to write it down because you think you're going to remember it. Like, oh, this is so good. This is so visceral and vivid and, and fully embodied. Of course, I won't forget it. It's There's something very ephemeral and divinely gifted to you in the, this moment. And if I don't capture it down in something physical, it doesn't become materialized and I lose it. Oh, so that's actually down. good advice. Okay. That's really good advice. Well, I wanted to ask you the first time, and I don't think I ever did, but how much of you ends up in your books. Like I can't help thinking about Alice and still Alice being a professor at a, you know, very respected major university like Columbia versus let's say Harvard where, you know, I could have seen you been, you know, being a professor or something. So it's just interesting. I just wonder how much of you comes into the stories. Yeah, a lot. So, and I didn't, I didn't realize this when I was writing still Alice. It was after the first draft where I realized and, and it's not so much that the characters are things that I am professionally. So I've never been a professor. Right, right. Um, I never taught at Harvard. I was a graduate student there, but at right. the medical school, not at Harvard University, where I, I set this book. It's really the questions, my life questions, I ask in my books. So in Still Alice, it was a question of identity and who am I and do I still matter? if I'm not these things. So when I wrote that book, I had just recently become divorced. I was heartbroken. I felt like a failure. I felt ashamed. I felt unacceptable. And so it's not an Alzheimer's diagnosis. It was some other life thing that made me feel excluded from belonging and no longer really who I was. And it was my my, I was grappling a lot with, well, how do I matter? And do I still matter? And am I still me if I'm no longer, you know, wife in this sort of setting, like the, like just the life setting of, you know, part, being part of a couple and being part of a life that where it was, well, now I'm a divorced single mother. That was a different life trajectory than the one I had imagined for myself. So Alice has a very different life trajectory than the one she'd imagined for herself. And how does she still matter? Do the people who love her still love her? Um, so, yeah. So there's lots of me grappling with my own questions in all of the books that I write. And so all of the books, while they are absolutely about neurological conditions, they're about our human condition. Mm -hmm. They're about, you know, how do we how do we express and feel loved? Um, they're about forgiveness and redemption. Um, they're about how do we, how can vulnerability be a strength and a sign of courage? Um, so yeah, it's about all of the books have elements of the life questions I care most about. It's awesome. And I think maybe that's why they resonate so deeply when you read them, because they're so real. They're it's like, it's palpable. You know, you're like, yes, like, even if you haven't experienced what the main character or, you know, who's going through, there's something about, like you said, the human condition that you can feel and just connect to. And so I think that's cool. I, I had a feeling that you were in there in some way, but just not how. So 
Yeah, I'm in there. And, and, and so it's specifically me. And then it's not also, I think sure. it can be, it's universal because I'm a human. And I think that when you boil any situation down where human beings are involved, we're talking about love or fear. Mm-hmm. I really think that those are the two elements that we all recognize and that we all deal with every day. You know, are we coming from love or are we coming from fear? And I think that, you know, in, in many of the situations my characters find themselves in, it, the, in, the initial reaction is to come from fear. There's denial and there's grief and there's rage and there's blame and there's, there's resentment or there's, um, there's just full on fear. And we human beings relate to that because that's what happens in our lives. Um, and then it's, the resilience of, of the human spirit and the triumph is when we can come from love in the face of fear, in the face of a situation that's hopeless. Can we find the hope? Mm. Um, can we choose to stay connected to loved ones rather than disconnect? Can we choose forgiveness um, even when that's hard? Um, so, yeah, I write about flawed characters. Someone once said to me, you know, uh, with every note played in particular, like Richard's such a jerk. Why did you have to make him such a jerk? <laughs> I'm like, well, there are elements of him that, you know, can be seen as, as being a jerk, but it's, you know, he's like, he can be self-centered and he can be self-absorbed and self-focused and he's hurt people in his life and there's more to him. Mm-hmm. And if given this situation, can he self-reflect and see the, the times in his life where he has, he wishes he had behaved better or wishes he had treated the people in his life with more care rather than carelessness. That book is a lot about how we care for each other as human beings. Um, so yeah, I'm not interested in writing about perfect people who live perfect lives or it's about all of our imperfections and, and what we strive for. Yeah. And like I said, I think that's why they resonate so much. And what's cool about you, Lisa, is that you have your PhD in neuroscience. So you've got, you know, you really understand the brain and you can go deep on that. And yet you went on this creative path. So I don't think there's many writer, fiction writers out there who have this unique perspective. And it's funny because everything you're talking about right now is actually very reminiscent of what we're going through, like the uncertainty and can you find faith? Can you lead with love versus fear? I mean, these are things we're being tested with daily. Mm -hmm. So I did actually want to ask you because you embarked on becoming a writer when you were going through a life transition and some major uncertainty. And so many people right now are sitting and overwhelmed with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. What are, I don't know, how does somebody get aligned? Because I think if this virus is teaching us anything or bringing, kind of making us more aware of it's just how important our life is and to really own it and embrace it. And the show has always been about getting aligned with your path. And I know this is a big question and you can't solve it for everybody, but I'm just curious because you had to obviously go in and trust a voice that was telling you to write when really nothing on paper made sense for you to follow that path. So how do we, how does someone get aligned with their path and their purpose? You know, um, I don't know if you want to share like an example based on the crossroads you were at or what you can share here, but I'd love your, your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I can absolutely share some of what went on for me and the lessons that I learned from making those kinds of choices. Um, It's funny, you know, when I look, I'm turning 50 in a couple of months, and it really does feel like a moment of transition in my life. And so I've been looking back a lot. Um, It's funny, I have my friend Ken Dykewald, who just wrote a memoir, he did this exercise with the therapist where he meditated and went back to his 20 year old self and had a conversation with him. And they were just sort of both taking each other in and, and decide sort of deciding whether was 20 year old Ken proud of 70 year old Ken and what did they have to say to each other. And I tried that out and went back to my college self and, and, you know, do I warn myself about the mistakes that I've made? Do I, it was a very fascinating exercise. I invite anyone to do that, to go back to your younger self. And what would you, what would you say? What would, where are the regrets? And maybe what you have held as a regret, maybe it isn't because there are things that blessings that came along with the mistakes um, roads that opened up that you wouldn't have known could have existed. So so the the choice to write a novel didn't make sense on paper. I had never taken a writing class. I don't have a degree in English. I don't know how to write a novel. I was just recently divorced. I was unemployed. I was a single mom. So I already felt very much displaced. Um, like I said, ashamed. I felt unacceptable. Um, and it's funny because looking back, you know, since then I remarried and got divorced again and second divorce, I had no problem. with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish I could have gone back and told my younger self, younger self it's okay. Um, but in that space of uncertainty, what I got lucky with is that I was, I was really fearful at first. And the biggest overwhelming fear that caused me to cry in public regularly was I don't know what my life is going to look like next. Mm. I just don't even know. I, I don't know what's there. Do I go back to my old job? Do I, you know, go, I was working as a strategy consultant for biotech and pharmaceutical companies. Do I continue with that? Do I go back to neuroscience research? Do I, what do I do? I want a family. Do I get remarried? Who is that? How am I going to find someone? Am I going to have more kids? Like, I didn't know any of it. And the uncertainty of not knowing what was next, all of that just nothingness was so terrifying to me. And what was lucky is, and what I would invite for others, and what I definitely try to do for me, because I'm in an uncertain moment right now in many ways too, is, and my daughter's in this moment right now, my 20-year-old, when you're feeling the fear, the overwhelm, I don't know what's next. I can't picture it. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm so scared to invite the possibility of getting excited rather than scared. And that might seem like a huge leap. And I think the bridge from fear to excitement is curiosity. So instead of, oh my God, I don't know what's next. It was, how can I be curious about what could be next? Okay, something's gonna be next. It's not gonna be nothing. My life will not be devoid of of stuff. So I'm going to be, living something next, 
could I be curious about what that could be? And to start to ask questions, well, could it, do I want to do this? Well, wait, I kind of am in a position right now. This is me back when I was 33. I'm in a position to do anything I wanted in some ways. I mean, yes, I'm going to have to make money. Yes, I'm going to have to support my child. But I'm not in a, I'm not in a graduate school program. I'm not already in a job that I feel like I can't quit because I have to stick with it. Uh, I have this sort of spacious moment to consciously choose what I'd like to do next. And that's the bridge to excitement for me. It was like, oh, well, what could that be? And so I started thinking, well, what do I want to do? And interestingly, the answer didn't come from a spreadsheet or like a logical place in my head where I ruled out the pluses and minuses of this or that. It was a knowing. It was your, it was my intuition. It was that truthfulness that is my soul, that is me, that my centeredness. It was this knowingness. I want to write a novel. I want to write the novel about a woman with Alzheimer's. I'd had this idea many, many years ago, assumed I might do it as a hobby someday when I was retired. And so I tried to get rid of it because I'm like, that doesn't make sense. That's not a safe thing to do next. I might not be able to do it. I might not finish it. If I finish it, it might not get published. It might not make any money. People will point and laugh at me because um, what's this neuroscientist doing writing a novel? Um, I'm already in this sort of outlier place, not acceptable. And now I'm going to do this thing that people are going to scratch their heads over and not know where to put me, right? So I, it was, I tried to logically reason it away. Don't write a novel next, Lisa. That's a bad idea. And very fortunately, the knowing in me, that knowingness, you want to write this novel. That's not a bad idea. That is you. You want to do this. You're supposed to do this. This, it was a, a true north tuning fork kind of like resonance. Like this is so true for me that to do anything else is, is dishonoring yourself. It's lying. You would be lying if you didn't do this. So as weird and scary and like, what am I doing? I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna honor this knowing in me that I, I'm, I'm supposed to write a book. I'm going to write this book. And it wasn't like, oh, it'll be a New York Times bestseller and it'll be a movie and Julianne Moore will win an Oscar and I'll have a whole career as a writer. I think that kind of like when you're washing the dishes, you're washing the dishes. I was like, I, all, I, all I know is I want to write this book. Today I'm writing three pages of this book or today I'm going to you know, interview a neuro neurologist. How do you talk to someone with Alzheimer's? I was just focused on the doing of it. And not the, you know, is it going to all make sense later? Because I think that's too big. Even now it's too big. I'm writing a book on bipolar. If I think, okay, the whole book, I'll get paralyzed and be like, well, I don't know how to write a whole book today about bipolar. But I do know how to interview the next psychiatrist. So I do know how to assemble the pieces one at a time. I'm going to wash the dishes while I'm washing dishes. I'm going to write the book while I'm writing the book. So it was trusting that knowing and it's interesting. So for anything in life, if I have this discord, if I have this internal restlessness, this sense of this isn't right, and the fear starts coming, and and I, if you, for me to get still and 
think to myself and feel in myself, what do I know? What, do I, what is my known truth? Um, it usually raises its hand very quickly. And when I listen to it, the path is clear and life flows and synchronicities happen and life feels magical. And when I don't, when I reason and use my head and I'm very smart, I can intellectualize anything. If I'm like, no, 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 little knowing voice inside me, that's a bad idea because of A, B, X, Y, and Z. I will continue to experience discord, disharmony, frustration. Yeah, things don't typically go well. So it's, you know, a regular lesson in my life. And it's fascinating to watch that this is, this is as real as, you know, math. That when I listen to the knowing, my path feels glorious. So I'm taking in everything you said. There were so many sort of nuggets in there that I really want to just highlight for everyone listening that kind of washed over me. I mean, I heard faith over fear. So having faith, I heard courage to follow the path when you hear the knowing, heard intuition, which we all have. So what you're talking about, as we all know, is like, it's not unique to Lisa. Like we all have this, Yeah. but, but having the courage like you did to actually say to that very intellectual part of yourself, you know, okay, got you, but no, this time, you know, you even said my soul spoke to me. And yeah, so- because to just be really clear, like it made zero sense for me to write the book that became still Alice, like zero. And I was, a, I'm a very logical, scientifically minded kind of person, right? I have a PhD from Harvard. Like that's like, you don't listen to your intuition if you're a scientist from Harvard. But I'm saying as a human being, yeah, like even the scientists, it's like, put the thinking you aside and listen to the knowing you. It's a very different experience because it, it's, it didn't make sense. There's no, there was no logical reason for me to have written that book. I had to be unreasonable to write Still Alice. And so I did the unreasonable thing, which I never would have advised me to do coming from a place of logic, intellect, analytical um, it didn't make sense. And yet it's, you know, this is 100% what I should be doing with my life. I am writing books about people living with neurological diseases and disorders and mental illness who feel, feel ignored and feared and misunderstood and marginalized. And this is, it has such great purpose for me because it's, it combines this love I have of how our brains work and don't work with contributing to helping people understand each other from a place of empathy and bringing people back into community and being seen and heard. And so this thing that I do is so fulfilling and I feel uniquely qualified to do it in so many ways. And so it's like, wow, if I hadn't listened to that knowing I'd have a job and I'd make money and I would have fulfillment in lots of ways. I cannot imagine that it would be this and that I would have missed my one and only life's opportunity to, to do this glorious thing that I love to do. Like, this is it. Like, right. This is your one wild and precious life. This is it. And I could, if I had ignored that knowing 
I could be in a research lab somewhere and I could be doing good work or, or whatever it is. I don't believe it would be this. I don't believe that I would feel, I feel lit up, alive, grateful, ignited, powerful doing what I do. Um, so thank God I listened to it. I could, I mean, I could have very easily talked myself out of that choice. It would have made a whole lot of sense for me to say, no, you've got to go back to work right now. You need the stability of a, of a paycheck right now. Um, you need people to accept you that you now sit in a box that everybody understands and can be like, okay, that makes sense. Make them comfortable. Yeah. Make them comfortable. Right. So yeah, we love to be comfortable as humans. God, do we hate to be uncomfortable for a moment? So, but you know, change, I wrote this on my Instagram page after George Floyd was killed. Um, I said, you know, change does not come from a place of being comfortable. We have to get uncomfortable if we want something to change. You have to move through the discomfort. You have to be able to be willing to feel something that is uncertain to get to something different. Um, and so I wanted, I wanted something different um, than the path I was on. And I had to go through that uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know how to write a novel, but I'm going to do it anyway. What's so great is that you did listen to your soul. Like our soul knows, the higher self, there's a divine plan. This is my belief system. And so what's interesting and something that I've really been paying attention to in my life and different guests, like I'm seeing what I call like a through line. There are these themes that are in your life that somehow all come together. So your experiences with the neuroscience, your acting classes, which you talked about in you know the, the first uh, interview, um, your curiosity around people, your experience with your grandmother, like all these different things had to happen in your life. And there's this through line that now allows you to kind of pull all of your strengths, what makes you uniquely you to do the work that you were divinely meant to do. That's, and so I see this time and time again, and I don't know that you can see those through lines sometimes until you're further along in the path. And then you look back and you're like, oh my goodness, wow, look how this experience combined with this experience, with meeting this person with, you know, all kind of came together to create what I'm meant to do. But this is, this is what I want for everyone, myself included, to be lit up, to be on that path, to be on that journey, to be living their purpose. So you can't do that for everyone else, but it's so nice to hear your experience and what was happening as a guide. Cause maybe somebody's going to go, Oh yeah, well, I've been a voiceman telling me to write for 10 years, or uh, I've been feeling like I'm supposed to whatever, pick up a paintbrush again or whatever it is. And, but they're not allowing that because it doesn't make sense. Right. Or it's end a relationship or start a relationship, or move to a different part of the world, or it, it can be all kinds of things that you, we rationalize and, and logically decide, well, I'm going to stay where it's quote unquote safe, mm -hmm. um, or where I'm accepted. And, you know, I recently read Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Yeah. And, you know, she talks about, you know, that first chapter with Tabitha, the cheetah, and, and like that the cat should be happy in the zoo and that it, this wild cat should, you know, it's fed, it's got all the food it needs, it's safe from predators, it's, you know, it's got a, a home, like a, it should be happy, it should feel good. But why does it feel like there's something more, there's something else, like this should just be enough? And Glennon says, 
you know, the cat, like Glenn's imagining the cheetah thinking like, am I crazy that I feel this unsettled and this, this yearning for something different, something else. And she's like, no, you're not crazy. You're a cheetah. <laughs> I, I mean, I love everything that woman writes. Um, yeah. But what resonates there and what I think is pertinent to this conversation is this idea of like not tricking yourself into thinking that, Oh, well these, this life I'm living is good enough. It's okay. I'm not satisfied. Or there's a knowing in me that's calling me to do something else. And I can't seem to shake it. It just, it's, it's telling me I need to start this or it's telling me I need to end that, or it's telling me I need to do something, but I, I, I want to ignore it because I'm, it's good enough. It's like, no, is this is your, this is your one wild and precious life, folks. Like you're going to be dead someday. And if you don't risk honoring yourself, if I didn't risk honoring myself with the desire to write still Alice, not knowing why or how to do that, then I would have missed out on my favorite part of my life so far. Mm, So Um, so it's a a risk. It is. And yet it's like, once you've done it once, you're like, Oh, this is exciting when the knowing comes because this is pointing me to the good stuff. Right. Even yeah. if it doesn't make sense. And your path yeah. wasn't an easy path because you self-published, you were rejected. Oh, yeah. So- it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like, well, once I make the decision, everything will line up and poof, tomorrow right. my world will be magically solved. Yeah. It was it was work, but it, it and it was work that that I enjoyed. It was joyful exciting. work. It was joy filled work. Joyful work. Yeah. And I think people yeah. need to understand that too. So it doesn't mean that it's not, there's not a, the path, you know, we talked, you mentioned synchronicities and I know this from my own life too, that just certain people just come into your life and things kind of flow and you're like, and that's where we all want to be in, in that flow state. But it doesn't mean that, you know, you're lucky or, you know, things aren't hard along the way too. Can you speak to that a little bit? Cause I think that's an important part of the, the trusting. Yeah. I think that when, so when you're living a life on purpose, when you're connected to, to purpose and contribution and coming from a place of love, coming from a place of honoring your soul, all of those types of things, it doesn't mean that you wake up in the morning and you stay in fluffy slippers and, and cozy fleece pajamas on the couch, you know, eating bonbons all day and it just falls into your lap. For me, it means sh- when I show up, to be available for the magic to happen and to, and to look for it. Like, okay, I'm, I'm writing this book on bipolar now and my, my antenna are dialed into the synchronicities. Like, Oh, when am I going to bump into the next person who's going to say, Oh, I have bipolar. I'd love to talk to you. Or I know someone who has this or has gone through it and the right people start to materialize, but it doesn't materialize out of nowhere. So I'm reading books and, I'll read a book by an author who mentions a support group online. So I can contact the leader of that support group and say, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Is there anyone there who'd like to share their story with me so I can learn from them? And, Oh yeah, we know people here. Um, So it's, it's, you know, doing the work, it's showing up for the dream that you want. So it's not enough to just wish for it. It's you show up, and you have your intentions of what you need and what you want to call into your life. And those become available when you 
when you look, you, you find what you look for. Yeah. Um, and if you're on purpose, I just believe that it materializes that much quicker. And then there's, you know, there's a psychology of it too, right? So if, you know, I wrote, I used this example and in inside the O'Briens, I have Katie walking to the yoga studio and she's saying like, well, she actually, she, her dad's just been diagnosed with Huntington's and now she's noticing every little tick and stumble and slur in his words and any anytime he drops something and she feels like she's seeing Huntington symptoms all day long now. And she's like, well, it's like if I were walking to work yesterday, if you asked me how many red cars I saw on the way, I'd say, I don't remember seeing any red cars. But today, if you asked me to see how many red cars, I can tell you I saw seven. So we find what we look for. If you're getting clear about what you want, if you have clarity of purpose, then you're dialed into seeing what's right in front of you, right? So I can see the seven cars on the way to work if I'm looking for red cars. I can notice the people who are available to help me understand bipolar disorder when I'm dialed into that intention. Yeah, the energetic frequency of where you're going and also this the magic of co-creation, right? It's like, to me, for me, it's God. For somebody else, it could be higher power, whatever, the universe, but meeting you because you've had now had the courage to answer the call. Yeah. To, to come back to that remembering. I call it a remembering. I think it's all planted within us. And this is part of our journey just to kind of remember. Yeah. It's astounding when it happens. Did I tell you in our last interview, did I share the story about the ballerina? I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Let me really quickly. So yeah. yes, this happens in all kinds of ways. And with every book, it's very exciting actually. Cause I'm like, I can't wait for the magic to start to happen because it happens. And so they've, so many great stories, but this one might be my favorite. So with Inside the O'Briens, I made a decision. So I researched everything. And so it's not just Huntington's disease. The main character is a Boston police officer. So I researched the heck out of like how do police officers spend their day-to-day -day lives. Um, one of the characters is, is a yoga teacher. So I took a 200-hour yoga teacher training. Um, so I, I do. I, the, the book takes place in Charlestown, Massachusetts. So I spent a lot of time in Charlestown. And then I made this decision that one of the daughters is a dancer for the Boston Ballet, which I loved because it was this juxtaposition of this disease that robs your ability to control voluntary movement and introduces a lot of involuntary movement. And here, if you're a dancer for the Boston Ballet, your identity and passion resides in your ability to move gracefully and fluidly and with precision. So love the choice, but I don't know anything about what it takes to become a ballerina, what that life is like, what the day-to-day -day training is like. So I have more research to do and I kind of don't know where to begin except that I did begin. And so the, the showing up was, I said, okay, I'll buy tickets to see Coppelia at the Boston Ballet and I'm, I'll take my cousin Tracy with me. So I got to Boston early that day and it was a gorgeous day. So I sat on a bench in um, the Common, Boston Common, and got out my notebook. I had been in Charlestown earlier, so I was just taking some notes. So I'm on the bench, and I look over. There's one other woman on the bench next to me, and she's young, probably around 20 years old, and she is stitching a ribbon onto her ballet shoe. I mean, come on. So I say to her, I say, excuse me, um, are you a ballerina? And she says, yes, I'm in Coppelia tonight. No, stop. And I said, oh, my God, you are also in my book. 
So I interviewed her. I just her got goosebumps. That. I just have to say, I literally just got chills yes, go down my whole body. Have you ever seen a ballerina stitching a ribbon onto a no. ballet shoe in, in, in public? So I sat no. next to her and just like I did, I looked up to the sky. And I said, and in the show you're going to see. Uh, right. No less. So, oh, and then she's goodness. the exact same age as the character I had no. imagined. I mean, the whole thing. It's like she should have been like just listening to music on her little earbuds and um, yeah, that she, like, she could have been next to me and I wouldn't have known she was a ballerina, but, but the universe put her freaking shoe in her lap. So I Lisa, I so still have goosebumps. Like it, it won't leave me. That is just. It's impossible. So yes, it happened. But possible. That's the whole beauty yeah, of it. Right. right. Okay. So listen, we all need this yeah. magic, Lisa. Yes. You can't wave a magic wand for all of us, but how, like, how do we get how do we get there? So what is there? It's not a discipline because it's a, it's sort of an opening. It's sort of the opposite of that. Right. I mean, it's maybe, do we all know if we really listen? Cause you said it was so clear, like there was no denying it. That I wanted to write the book. Yes. That you wanted yeah. to write. I think that, you know, again, like for, I think a lot of folks, certainly people who are listening to your podcast, probably know intellectually that meditation is good for you and like, Oh yeah, I should be meditating. I should be meditating. And, and what is that all about? Um, you know, I think that meditation helps, uh, helps me be less reactive and more responsive also helps me be aware of the difference between the chattering, the thinking that's just chatter and the, 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 the ego voice in me that's telling me what I should and shouldn't do and the, the, the sort of judgmental voice inside versus the knowing voice inside. It help, I think that giving yourself a chance on a regular basis to be quiet and listen to what's going on in you and to not shoo things away like, oh, I mean, at the time, you should write a book. You want to you write a book. My, my reaction to that intellectually was no, <laughs> like not stop it. That's, that's a terrible idea. Like, do not think that. So I shunned it. And what I've learned, and it, you know, of course the end of that story ends with me not shunning it and, and listening to it. But what I've learned over the years is to get quicker at not shunning the knowing, like when I hear that knowing to, to pick up on it faster and with, with more reverence, like, Oh, everybody else be quiet. <laughs> Give that, that voice, the stage, that voice is, is actually the truth. Mm -hmm. How um, does your intuition speak to you? Regular quietness helps regular. us get to there. How does your intuition speak to you? How does I, it speak to me? Yeah. It's like, you just hear, like I say, I hear it. It's not like it's audible. Although I've had yeah. some audible stuff every once in a while. Yeah, mine's never audible. And I always point to my stomach when I hear it, when I hear it, I'm saying the words here, but it's not here. It's yeah. when I feel it. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a knowing that is comes it's from right. my center more than it comes from. It's not really a thought. Yeah. It's, it's just, just, it's so embedded within. Yeah. Yeah. It, it almost could feel like it comes from outside of me, it, but it's, it's definitely not an intellectual idea. Right. You can't um, think your way there. I think that's just important I, to just, I'm not thinking my way to that thought because the write the book <laughs> right. it was, it was a, huh? Well, what do you mean? 
whatever voice that is in me or like, what do you mean write a book? That's terrible. Stop, stop saying that. And it was <laughs> I love that voice. so much. Wait, Lisa, do you journal? I do. So is that part of this practice? Because I find sometimes I can journal with that part. And sometimes I'm like, who's writing this answer? And then if I go back to the journal, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's so clear when it's me and when it's another part. But in the moment, I can often be like, "Mm, who's saying this? Or like a consistent message I get is love yourself. I'm like, 10 years, love yourself. What does that mean? But that's clearly part of my work. But so I'm just curious how how that factors in for you. Yes, mine, the one that comes up in my, it's so funny because I just recently read through a lot of my journal entries from the last year. And the one that comes up for me the most is you are enough. You are enough. Um, So yes, I, in my journal entries, they're funny because I talk to myself. So I'll say, I'm really scared about this. And then I'll pep talk myself with Lisa. You need, this is why you're afraid. And this is what you need to do. And like, and then there's the the knowingness and the truth. And like, it's a weird little dynamic where it sounds like I have split personality disorder almost. I'm talking to different parts of myself and we all live with those, right? We live with Mm -hmm. the part of you that is the warrior that's there to protect you from ever being hurt again or hurting that part of the parts of you that doesn't, that doesn't trust you to stand up for yourself and be a voice for your own justice. There's the scared, worried parts of you. There's the parts of you that are in despair over the wrongs that you've endured. There's the parts of you that, you know, want to take risks and do things that feel scary. There's the parts of you that want to feel safe and cozy. Um, So we can wrestle with these parts of ourselves and it can get confusing if we just sort of like, if it's amorphous, but when you write it down, when you journal, you can give those voices a chance to have their conversations. Totally. And then there's the you that is the most integrated part of you that can look at all of that and make some sense of what's going on, why you're making the decisions you're making. Um, and maybe come out knowing something new because you get to see it articulated on the page. Like, oh, here's all my fear and here's all my anxiety mm-hmm. and here's all of my desire and my longing. Oh, that's what I want. Oh, okay. And that's when you turn on that curiosity and start taking some steps, right? You know, I mean, what I do what I really want this. Well, what could that look like? What if yeah. I did that? What if I took that chance? Yeah. What if I lived on purpose doing something that feels a little wild and crazy based on, you know, to use Glenn Doyle's language again, to, to be, if I'm going against the memo that I've been given, all those memos, all the programming, all the, you know, the religious upbringing or the Disney princess movies or whatever it is that has informed what your life should look like. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're, you know, how many billion people on this planet? And it's like absurd to think that every woman's life should look a certain way and every man's life should look a certain way and your emotions should look like this and your house should look like that. And this is what it should look like when you're 40. It's like, it's insanity. So yeah, make up your own rules and be open to what you're knowing is saying because because it's all everything's the rules are all made up. And that's where the magic's at. 
Yeah. That's where the magic's at. We all want to sit next to the ballerina and have this like <laughs> dumbfounded, like, what? How could this be happening? This is amazing. Like those are, that's the magic in life, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. curious, um, do you have a manifesting practice? What are your thoughts on manifesting? Like once oh, you have that clear, you know, that clarity about, okay, this is what the knowing's telling me, do you then dream into it and try to paint a future? I don't know. I'm just curious what. Yeah. So at least once a year, and I started doing this after um, the month I got divorced that first time I, I do it at least every year and I've found I've been doing it maybe once a quarter. Now I do, I am, and I really want, and I just do stream of consciousness on a piece of paper. I am. And I really want, and I love it because it gives me a chance to look back and say, of the I really wants, have I, am I living how I really want to live or am, am I ignoring what I really want and why? Or am I fulfilling my life's true desires? And the I really want gives me a chance to know what I really want. And then I try to visualize that too. So I do make vision boards. I do continue to journal about that thing I really want. Writing it down makes it realer. If you just think it in your head, it stays kind of private and secret. I think secrecy breeds shame about it. Like, oh, I could feel ashamed that I want this because it's haven't articulated it. So speak it out loud. Write it down. Oh, my God. When I announce on social media that I'm writing a book about, about bipolar, that's, that's helping me manifest the book. If I just kept it secret and never told anyone I'm writing a book about bipolar, kind of gives me an out. Maybe I won't now. No one will know. Mm. I'm going to voice it. I'm going to make it real. Already it's real, even though I haven't written a word of it yet. Right. So it helps me manifest it. Um, really funny. My 10 year old daughter who was nine earlier this year wanted a dog. I never in my life thought I would get a dog. I didn't have a dog growing up. Um, she made this magnificent vision board in the middle of COVID. She pictures of dogs, puppy, mom, please. I want a dog. It was the cutest thing ever. Uh, no joke. Like three weeks later, I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Again. <laughs> oh my goodness. And we love the dog. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm laughing. Cause my daughter, if I could show you around the house, I went into my podcast studio before doing an interview and I looked up pictures of dogs. I open up my journal. It's like, you will get me a dog. <laughs> I mean, there's like dogs every- like in my bedroom, I open the closet. If I rip it off the picture, there's like another picture. Like, so yeah, she's, she's yeah. So it's funny. <laughs> this dog is coming. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's now like just a matter of time and which one, you know, Totally. but I, so I love that. Good. I hope the future generation is more empowered on, on manifesting. Um, curious, any non-negotiables for you in your life to like to living a good life, any non-negotiables like you must have in order to live a good life. Oh gosh. Well, yeah. Um, mm. So non-negotiables for me are good relationship with my children where we feel connected and loved and happy and seen and heard. Um, The love of my girlfriends, my soul sisters, um, it's the love of family, my, my, my parents, my brother, my extended family. Um, so I think that that's not negotiable. I think that, um, taking care of my body, this container I'm riding in 
is not negotiable. I might not do it every day. I certainly don't do it every day. Um, but getting out and walking at a very mi minimum, yoga, dance, some kind of exercise, play, um, I think is so vital to being grateful for the body I'm riding in, whatever age that may be. I'm going to take care of it. I think taking care of the life you're in, right? So being not, the non-negotiables are, I want to pay attention to what matters and care for it. Um, so whether that's like a really delicious meal with my friends and family, whether that's the yoga that I'm doing or the dishes that I'm washing or the book that I'm writing, it's can I... I just, just take care of what I'm doing. Yeah. Non-negotiable. Um, yeah. And then the, just as the neuroscientist in me wants to share, like sleep has become a priority for me for sure. Mm -hmm. I was wondering with all the research you've done too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is in the memory book as well to talk about sleep and just the research is really compelling and unequivocal. It is, we need sleep to be healthy, vibrant, people and if you want a long life you need to sleep and if you want to be resistant to alzheimer's you need to sleep and so um any sleep that you've missed in your life is water under the bridge because you know i've raised children and breastfed and yeah so just making that a, a nightly priority of like well do i want to watch another episode of handmaid's tale which is by the way going to really stress me out right before bed <laughs> <laughs> um, or, you know, do I want to get an extra hour of sleep? Um, do I want to scroll through Instagram, you know, mind numbingly for another half an hour or do I want another half hour of sleep? So I'm really trying to prioritize sleep that needs, that's a non-negotiable for me now. Love it. Um, what advice do you think your 85 year old self would give you about living a good life? So your future, you, what do you think she'd want you to know? Lisa. The word that keeps coming up to me is relax. Oh. Relax. It's all going to be okay. Um, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And you are enough. You're already enough. Oh, it's perfect. It's what that wiser self keeps telling you in, in the journal. Yeah. Um, so to use your words, I heard you say this in another interview, this, this idea. So I believe that everyone yearns to quote you live the fully expressed version of themselves. This is what we've talked about today. And I thought you've, you've been incredible. It's like so beautiful and rich and deep. And I think going to leave people with a lot to think about and to pay attention to. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, sort of closing thoughts. What advice can you leave the women listening today to help them on their way? especially if they're feeling lost or unsure, any just like kind of closing thoughts that you want to leave them with? Oh, and I love, I love the idea of the giving advice to women, not that, you know, men don't need it too. It's just, I know so many women and I, being a woman who's gone through so many life changes, there's this idea of what we're supposed to be and the shoulds. And I know so many women who know they want to leave a marriage or start a new career or live somewhere different. 
they want to do something that's unconventional according to the, the programming and the rules we've been handed from birth. And there's this sense of, I can't because, or I need to wait because I'll do it in five years. I'll do it in 10 years. And, you know, we can only do what we can do when we're ready. My hope is that women find the courage or the tools or the permission to be ready sooner. Because mm-hmm. what, what I ache for and what I know, because I've done this, right? I've had two marriages. One was a good marriage that ended and the other was a horrible marriage that ended. In both of the situations, they needed to have ended years before it actually happened because I was afraid to do what I knew was my knowing, right? I was afraid to step into that next uncertainty. I was afraid to, to honor my knowing because I didn't know how it would work out. So the advice I try to remind myself of when I get in situations of like, oh, I need to make a change, but I'm afraid is can I bridge the fear to excitement with curiosity? Can I, can I honor my knowing because that is going to be the path to all that is right in, for me? And if I avoid it, if I postpone it, I am just delaying my life. Mm. So this is it, folks. This is your one wild and precious life. Like, let's try not to delay your authentic knowing, your authentic path when you know it already. It's so hard. Um, but yeah, I'd love to see that so many women I know get to their, get to what they know they need to do sooner. Cheers to that. Yeah. Thank you for going deep and being willing to have this conversation and to share your experiences. Because like I said, the reason I chose you for the first episode, and I was so grateful that you said yes, let's say I said chose in my mind, in my manifest <laughs> manifestation, you were the, you were the, and well, and we share a mutual friend. I'm like, Steph, I'm like, you have to introduce me because I just, Lisa's the embodiment of what this show represents. And so thank you for coming back, not once now, but twice and sharing your, the beautiful life you've created and for wanting that for the other women. So thank you. Michelle. It's so good to be with you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, that you'll share it with a friend. Remember, show notes can be found at thegoodlifecoach.com. Now be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast players so you never miss an episode. Thanks as always for tuning in and I'll reconnect with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.